Father, we just sang a song that we desire to be the cry of our hearts, that you would show us Christ through the preaching of your word. And we confess that there is nowhere else to go. You alone have the words of eternal life. So speak those words to us this morning. Awaken us to see who you are. Awaken us to see the truth of who we are in you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. title of the message this morning is Witnesses to Jesus, Part 1. It's going to be in John chapter 5, verses 30 to 38. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we have some Bibles available, these kind of golden colored Bibles, and then there are some black Bibles. They should be on the back table. Uh, those are yours uh, to, to keep if you, if you need a Bible. It is on page 890 uh, in the Pew Bibles, John chapter 5. Before we dig into the passage for today, we're going to talk a little bit about where we've been and where we're going. Uh, We're starting a new sermon series this morning, and that can feel a little bit overwhelming. Uh, We just wrapped up a series in the Psalms uh, this summer, 13 weeks in the Psalms, and now we're we're digging into a new series. I think starting a new sermon series sometimes maybe can feel like the first day of class. Uh, College students, you guys are probably... Uh, about to experience this soon. I don't think classes haven't started yet, right? No. So soon. Uh, you know, you get to class and teacher gives you the, the new syllabus and it's got the outline for the class, right? And the professor's trying to argue why, like, this is the most important class that you'll ever take in your whole college career and, like, you need this information, like, if you're going to graduate and be successful in the world. Um, you You look at the syllabus and there's you know, thousands of pages of reading, there's papers, and you're anticipating a very, a very big workload. Well, comparing it to a sermon series, this, this workload is, is not just a workload for myself and for Bill and James and Chris when we're up here preaching and sharing God's word with you. It is a workload for all of us. It's a workload for all of us to engage with the Lord, to engage with the scriptures, to engage with who he has revealed himself to be to us in his word. But unlike maybe your college class, this is not a crushing or a paralyzing workload. It's not something that should keep you up at night with anxiety, like thinking, I can't, there's no way I can do this. Because it's not something that we have to do on our own. We're not left to our own devices to try to figure this out and try to understand all of these things. We have the privilege and the joy of of studying our Bibles and of digging into God's word to get to know him more so that we can live more faithfully in this world as exiles in this world, as we talked about a couple weeks ago in in our summer conversation, and so that we can be his witnesses in this world. And I want us to remember as we gather here that we're not here just for us. Our worship services are not about us just coming and it's not like a filling station where we just come to get filled up. Not that that's not at all a part of it, but we mainly gather here together for the glory of God. For the rehearsing and the retelling of the gospel as we sing and as we pray and as we hear God's word preached and as we give and as we observe the sacraments. 
in order that the world might see a people that are set apart, in order that our witness out there in the world might be fueled by our worship in here. Every week as I pray for the church and as I pray for all of you, the very first thing that I pray for every week, first I pray, Jesus, build your church, because he has to do it. And then I pray every week that we would be a worshiping community that calls people to come and see. Okay, we've talked about this before. Come and see. We should tell people, come and see what the Lord is doing, right? And then we should be a witnessing community that goes and tells. So come and see and go and tell. It's not one or the other, it's both and, right? Come and see what the Lord is doing. We come here, we worship, and then we go out into the world and we tell the world about who God is. And I believe that we cannot faithfully do that if we are not a people who are rooted and grounded in the authority of God's word. If we can't see Jesus and the glory of the gospel on every single page from Genesis to Revelation. And we've tried to do that here. Almost all of 2018 was spent, uh, it was almost all spent in the Old Testament. We were in Genesis and we were in Ecclesiastes. And the goal of almost all of that was to say, how how do the Old Testament scriptures point us forward to Christ? It's not enough to just read a bunch of stories about Noah and Abraham and all the patriarchs, right? And to just know all this information. We need to see how the scriptures point us to Christ. And then this year, we were in 1st and 2nd and 3rd John, and then we were in the Psalms this summer. Talked a lot in the Psalms about how do the Psalms point us forward to Jesus. So we've spent a lot of time over the last couple years talking a lot about Jesus, talking about how other scriptures point us to Jesus. And now I'm really excited for this next kind of long stretch here to dive into looking at Jesus' life and ministry. Nine out of the next ten weeks, we're going to be in John's Gospel. Uh, Two weeks, we're going to be in John chapter 5 this week, and then in two weeks, we're going to be in John chapter 5, kind of setting the stage for the I am statements. So there there are seven or eight, kind of depending on how you count it, I am statements, and you might be familiar with that. If you're not, I'll explain that in a minute. And then after we finish that, beginning in in November, uh, we're going to start Luke's Gospel. So we're going to be in Luke for... A long time until we finish it. So we might take a break in, in the summer and we might jump back into the Psalms again. But, but we're going we're gonna to plow all the way through Luke and we'll see how long it takes us. But really excited uh, to dig into the gospel some. And uh, so that kind of that answers the question of where we've been and where we're going to kind of set the stage for the fall for us. So now I want us to dig in a little bit to the context of John's gospel. I think this is really important stuff for us. Uh, especially what's going on leading up to and in the first half of chapter 5. We're going to see why this is so important. Uh, This might feel like a lot of information to digest this morning. I'm going to be covering a lot of different things. So if you are taking notes, I would encourage you uh, to to take take notes. And and this is something you could go back to if you want to. I don't usually like recommend going back and listening to sermons, but I think this is one that's going to be really helpful as we're going through the I am statements. So if you're like, what was that about again? Just really trying to, trying to set a foundation for where we're going. So um, yeah, this will, this will kind of give us that framework. So where do we begin here? As we're going to see in a couple months when we get to Luke, Luke begins his gospel account with a purpose statement 
right in the very beginning. Luke chapter 1, he tells us in the very beginning why he is writing his gospel. John waits all the way till the end. He waits all the way till chapter 20 out of 21 chapters to tell us why he is writing. And we're not going to make it to chapter 20 in our study of the I am statements because those occur between chapters 6 and 15. So here is John's purpose statement for writing. And we, if you were with us when we went through 1 John, there was a similar statement in 1 John. And we've, we've talked about this one. So John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. John said, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So this is a great summary of the I Am statements. The statements that we're going to be going through that Jesus makes about who he is, uh, so that the world would believe. John says he's, he writes so that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ. And that belief is a saving belief, that we would come to faith in Jesus as the Son of God and as the Savior of sinners. And that we would keep on believing, that we would have life in his name, that we would grow and that we would be sanctified in our Christian lives. And this, going through all this stuff, it's not just for the purpose of information. It's not just so that you can recall these things and say, oh yeah, you know, the, the seven or eight I am statements. Uh, I know where those are at. I know what chapters those are in. Um, I was here on Friday for about five hours with James, and he was taking his written exams for uh, licensure in the PCA, and uh, he had his, his exams on the Bible and on theology and on the Book of Church Order in the PCA. And I looked through his exam uh, before and after uh, he, he finished it, and uh, there wasn't a question on there about the I am statements, which ones they are and, and where they're at, but I'm sure James memorized that in preparation for, you know, if that was one of the questions. But just having that information in your head, just being able to rattle off like, oh yeah, I am the bread of life, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's not enough just to know that stuff, and it's not even enough just to know where those things are. If, if I get up here, if James gets up here, if our preaching is not in line with this aim of John in the writing of his gospel, in the, this account of Jesus' life and ministry, if we're not doing what John is, is trying to do so that people might believe that Jesus is the Christ, if we're just trying to give you information, then we're missing the mark. It's more than just knowing this stuff and taking notes so that you can say, oh yeah, I learned something really cool in church today. But that you would walk away saying, I believe Jesus and his gospel and I love God more because he met me in worship as we sang and as we prayed and as we heard his word preached. So John's purpose in writing needs to undergird where we're going over these next nine weeks. Okay? This is not just, it's not just something that's written for unbelievers. This isn't just, oh, that this gospel would go out and people would hear this for the first time and believe. No, it's that by believing, you would continue to believe and you would continue to have life in his name. We all need that. Week in and week out, day in and day out. So John's purpose in writing, very important. Second thing we see in John's gospel is this idea of, of the signs that Jesus did. Uh, the end of John's gospel is, is really cool. He says that Jesus did many other signs 
in the presence of his disciples, but he did so many things that aren't even written down. If, if John tried to write them, there wouldn't be enough space in the world for all the books that, to talk about all the things that Jesus did. Now, obviously, he's, he's speaking in hyperbole there, but Jesus did so many things, and there's so many works that he did, and John's gospel is really focused on this idea of, of Jesus' signs. It kicks off right away in chapter 2 with the wedding at Cana where Jesus turns the water into wine. And it says this is the first of Jesus' signs that he did. Then a couple chapters later in chapter 4, he heals an official son and says this is the second of Jesus' signs that he did. So John is very concerned with this idea of signs. And you see this dynamic playing out with Jesus and with the Jews and the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They are demanding signs for him, from him. They're saying, prove it. Prove, that, prove what you're doing. Show us these signs. If you say this is true, then do something about it. He does. He does the signs. And in chapter 12, it says, even though I do these signs, you still don't believe in me. And he says, this is to fulfill the scriptures. And he quotes from Isaiah 6 and quotes from Isaiah 53. And this is, this is a hugely important part of where we're going again today and over the next nine weeks. And it comes to us today in the form of a caution and a warning for all of us. And it's a dual caution. We need to be careful when we're reading our Bibles first, not to read ourselves into the story too much. Okay, We can't place ourselves in the first century. It was a unique historical setting. The Gospels were written covering this idea of the rejection of Jesus by the Jews and the religious leaders in fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. And I don't know if you've looked around and noticed lately, but we're not first century Jews, okay? And I don't know if any of us are Jews to begin with. So obviously we're not first century Jews, okay? We're not them. It was written to a unique context in a unique time. But the flip side of that, the other caution, is to be careful not to read ourselves out of the story either, We can't just say, well, this just applies to the first century Jews who rejected Jesus. I'm not like that, right? I don't act self-righteously. I don't do the things that they do. But there's no getting off the hook here. These confrontations that Jesus is having with the Jews, we need to put ourselves in their shoes in the things that Jesus is getting at, the things that he's getting, digging deeper and getting underneath I love Jesus in the Gospels because he's an equal opportunity offender. He's constantly confronting sinners in their unbelief. And when his word is read and preached and communicated to sinners today, 2,000 years later, the same challenge applies to us. Jesus' most challenging question, I think, in all of the Gospels is, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Everyone alive in his day and in our day, and everything in between, must answer that question. Who do you say that Jesus is? Back to our context in John and context for our passage this morning. There's a big showdown in the first half of chapter 5 between Jesus and the Jews after he heals a man on the Sabbath, something that they do not think he should be doing. Let's pick up in John chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. 
It says, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So remember that, okay? This, this whole thing, this is right before the first I am statement is going to happen in, in chapter 6, okay? This whole thing is, is based on this confrontation where they're trying to kill Jesus, the last I am statement we're going to look at, we're going to do them all in order except for chapter 8. It is before Abraham was I am, which I think is really kind of the capstone of all of them, even though it doesn't occur last. I think it's really the pinnacle of the I am statements. And that's the one that, whether you count seven or eight I am statements, is if you count Jesus saying before Abraham was I am. But when Jesus says before Abraham was I am, they know he's saying I am God. Because I existed before Abraham did. And we'll get into that, but it's very clear that he's claiming there to be God. And you know what they do immediately after he says that? They pick up stones to kill him, right? So we have this idea here that he heals on the Sabbath. He's making claims that he's making himself equal with God. We're starting with this. We're going to end with before Abraham was, I am. So everything that's happening in between is all this confrontation between Jesus and the Jews who want him dead for him claiming to be God. So all the bogus stuff out there, people saying, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. Baloney. I mean, it's all over. John says it very clearly. Jesus says it clearly. And all of these claims that he's going to be making are going to support that claim as we look at these I am statements. The next section here, we're not going to, we're not going to look at all of this, but verses 19 to 29 This is Jesus declaring that his authority comes from the Father. His authority to do these signs, his authority to do these works, to preach these things, comes from the Father. Verse 19 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. This statement here is very important because it sets us up for verses 30 to 47, which we're going to look at two of the next three weeks, and it's foundational to that and to the I am statements, that Jesus can do nothing on his own accord. And we're going to see that these witnesses to Jesus in, this, in verses 30 to 47 aren't just Jesus' words against all the other claims. Okay? In other words, the question is, where does Jesus' authority to speak and to do the things that he does come from? Are these just the claims of another deranged religious leader? Are they just some first century Jewish man who had this crazy following? As crazy as this sounds, Jesus is essentially saying, don't just take my word for it, okay? Don't just believe what I have to say. And this is massively important. So let's dig in and see what he means by that in verses 30 to 38 when he's saying, don't just take my word for it. John five thirty to 38. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. 
Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we're going to see in this passage three witnesses to Jesus. The first is the Father, the divine witness. We see the witness of the Father in verses 30 to 32, and then we're going to see it again in verses 37 to 38. In verse 30 here, Jesus speaks of his relationship with and his dependence upon the Father. Again, we just saw that in verse 19. He's saying here that I can do nothing on my own. I am fully dependent upon the Father. This idea of of not being able to do something on our own is echoed in John 15, 5. Jesus says, I am the true vine and you are the branches. He speaks to those who believe in him and he says what? Apart from me, you can do nothing. And that's all the exact same words that Jesus uses here in John chapter 5. So if Jesus, the very Son of God, can do nothing independently from the Father, how dare we think, us mortal creatures, that we can do anything apart from him? How can we be disconnected from the vine and still claim to be Christians and still claim to try to live the Christian life? The very Son of God said he could not do anything on his own apart from the Father. And then, I love this, Jesus says, he doesn't seek his own will, but the will of the Father who sent him. And again, how does this apply to us? How did Jesus teach us to pray? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, right? And in the Garden of Gethsemane, what did he say? Not my will, but yours be done. Jesus submitted to the will of his Father. Jesus said, I can do nothing apart from my Father. That's how we should pray. That's how we should live. God, not my will, but yours be done. And then verse 31, on the surface of it, sounds kind of shocking. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. And this appears to be contradictory to John eight fourteen, where Jesus says, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. There's a couple ways to look at this. One is that Jesus might be saying, If I bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true according to you, according to the Jews. You, you guys are saying, my testimony is not true. And I think the key comes actually in the word alone here. If I alone bear witness, and this is consistent with the theme throughout all of Scripture, that for something to be proven to be true, it must be validated by two or three witnesses. Okay, So Jesus is being consistent here and saying, hey, I'm not just coming on my own authority. I'm not just coming and saying these things on my own. 
I have other witnesses that speak about me. And I think that's the sense that he's saying here. So he's saying, again, I'm not coming to you on my own authority. Don't just believe it because I said it. Okay? Look to these other witnesses. And then he's going to continue to point them to his father. And that's the reason why they wanted to kill him in verse 18. It is the father, in verse 32, who bears witness about Jesus and his testimony is true. We'll come back to this at the end in verses 37 and 38. But first, Jesus is going to point us to two other witnesses who bear witness about him. The next one is John the Baptist, this human witness. Verses 33 to 35. He says to them, you sent to John. In other words, you guys wanted to hear what John had to say. You sent to him, and he has borne witness to the truth. This idea of, this, of the witness and the witness being true is very important here. Jesus is saying, everything that John said about me is true. Well, what did John say about Jesus? John chapter 1, verse 29, and then, and then verse 34. John saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he said, I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So Jesus is saying to the Jews, You guys want to kill me for claiming to be the Son of God. And John, to whom you are listening, the one to to whom you sent, He has already testified. He has already borne witness that I am the Savior of the world and the Son of God. You listened to him, and this is what he was saying about me. In John chapter 3, John the Baptist is speaking to his followers. He's comparing himself to Jesus. John 3, beginning in verse 31, he says, He who comes from above, Jesus, is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. John's testimony was about the truth of who Jesus is. And Jesus is saying in verse 34, I don't need the testimony of man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. Jesus, what is he saying here? He didn't need John's testimony to prove that he was who he said he is. He doesn't need our testimony, right? But the crazy thing is, is that is how he has decided for the gospel to go out into the world and for people to believe in him, to believe that the gospel is true. When they hear people, crazy Christians, right, who believe that the Bible is true, saying things like, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, and whoever does not obey the Son does not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. If you're a believer in Christ, you are called to be his witness. And though he doesn't need you to accomplish his purposes in this world, 
Christian, rejoice in the fact that he has chosen you and called you and appointed you as his witness and as his ambassador to, ambassador to play a role in the gospel being proclaimed in all the world. And if you're not yet a Christian, if you're here today and you have not yet trusted Christ, this is the message that we are called to proclaim to you. Believe in Jesus Turn away from your sins so that the wrath of God does not come upon you. and so that you do not perish and spend eternity in hell. That's not a popular message in our world today. But it's the message of the gospel. Jesus saying, come to me. I will give you life. I will forgive your sins. That's what we are calling you to. We're not calling you to follow us. We're not calling you to follow living stone or be Presbyterian or whatever. We're calling you to become a Christian, to place your trust in Jesus, the one who alone can save you from your sin. The next thing he points to is his works in verse 36. And I'm not going to say much about this this morning because we're actually going to be covering this a lot in, a lot in several of the I Am statements. A lot of the passages are going to deal directly with the idea of Jesus doing works that the Father has sent him to do. We've already talked about some of them, and I will mention a couple of them in a minute. Um, Specifically, uh, I am the bread of life in chapter 6. I am the good shepherd in chapter 10, and I am the way, the truth, and the life in chapter 14. Those passages all deal very directly with the works that Jesus is doing and kind of this confrontation he has uh, with religious leaders. I would encourage you, you know, over the, over the next 10 weeks or so, um, you know, just Google it where the I am statements are. If you just start in chapter 6 and you flip through and look at your headings, you can probably find them uh, pretty easily. But I would encourage you to be spending some time reading these I am statements in John's gospel as, as we're going through them. Well, then he wraps it up uh, in verse, verses 37 and, and 38 for, the, for our purposes today. Um, by talking again about the witness of the Father. I love this because Jesus, he just can't stop talking about his Father. Saying the Father has borne witness. The Father has borne witness, so why, the question is, why don't they believe? The problem is not with the Father. The problem is not with the Father's witness. The problem is not with the lack of works. The problem is not with the lack of human witnesses like John the Baptist. The problem is theirs, and the problem is ours. The problem is, you haven't heard his voice. Who hears his voice? Getting a sneak peek into one of our I am statements. John chapter 10. He says, you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Who hears the Father's voice, and consequently the Son's voice? It's his sheep. It's those who believe in him, and those who follow him those who are held secure by him. So the first indictment is they don't hear his voice. The second is you have never seen his form. 
well, who has seen the Father? You can think about Old Testament passages about how you know, we can't see God and live. Again, this is why this is so important that we understand who Jesus is. We understand his claims, okay? Who can see the Father? John chapter 14. This is the I am the way, the truth, and the life passage. Jesus just got done saying that. No one can come to the Father except through me. If you, would have known, have, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Okay? You have seen the Father. Philip says to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus, I don't think in a soft, like, oh, Philip voice, says to Philip, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Listen to this. This is exactly what we've been saying. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. He's saying, how much more proof do you need? I've been with you this whole time. I've taught you. I've shown you these works. I've told you about the Father. And you're still saying, show us the Father. Come on, Philip. I mean, really? And this is me, and it's you, right? Come on, Jesus, just show up or do something in my life. And he's saying, have you not seen this whole time that I've been with you? What are you looking for? Why are you looking out there? Why are you looking at circumstances and other things? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Believe that, Christian. I know it's hard sometimes, right? I know we feel sometimes like God is far away and, and we can't figure out life. But if, you've, if you know Jesus, you know and you've seen the Father. Don't forget that. So all of these themes here are tying together Jesus' authority to speak, doing the works of the Father, believing in him and the Father. And then the final indictment here in chapter 5 is that God's word is not abiding in them and that they are not believing in him, the one whom the Father has sent. And Jesus' point in all of this is that all of these things point to him. All of these things testify to and bear witness about him. We can't just pick and choose between the Father's witness and human witnesses and Jesus' works and the witness of Scripture, which we're going to be talking about in a couple weeks. I was thinking about this. I was thinking about Chris and I. We, we like to meet at Green's Poor House in Nina. If you haven't yet been to Green's Poor House for lunch, awesome place. Um, Cool environment, and uh, they have a they have a great buffet there. A great uh, it's a salad bar. It's all you can eat: uh, soup, salad, and pizza. Okay. Well, I'm gluten free, so um, you know I, I stay away from the pizza, right? So I load up my huge salad, but I don't put my croutons on it, right? Try to try to be careful with those things, and I I don't know if the soup's always gluten free, but I eat it. You know, it's not going to kill me. Um, 
But I go there, right? And I can kind of pick and choose what I want, right? I can say, oh man, this looks really good. I'm gonna try a little bit of this today. I'm clam chowder, yeah, New England style, right? Chris loves that. But that's not how it works with Christianity, right? We don't just get to pick and choose, like I want a little bit of this and a little bit of this. I don't want any of that, right? That's how some people approach the Christian life. Some people want Christianity without the Father's testimony, Okay, we've seen this throughout church history, kind of these weird attempts to pit the persons of the Trinity together to, against each other. Um, maybe saying like, well, the God of the Old Testament and, uh, you know, and, the, and Jesus and then the Father in the New Testament. is like two different gods and, and people try to like mess with stuff, right? Well, we're going to see specifically next week, uh, if you keep reading this passage to the end, we're going to see how Jesus is going to blow that whole thing up. Some people, they want Christianity without the witness of other people, okay? John the Baptist warned people that the kingdom of heaven was at hand and that they should repent. Obviously, we're not prophets like John the Baptist, but we should be pointing people to Jesus and speaking the truth about who he is to them. But a lot of people don't want to hear that, right? They want to say, keep your Christianity and keep your Jesus. That's okay for you, right? But keep it to yourself, We don't want any of that. We don't want to hear your testimony, right? Some people want Christianity without the works of Jesus. You ever heard of the Jefferson Bible? Probably, yeah. Thomas Jefferson went through. You know what he cut out? All the miracles of Jesus and the resurrection, okay? What he wanted was moral teaching without the supernatural. Moral teaching without without the demands to die to yourself, without the hope of the resurrection. And I'm sorry, it doesn't work, okay? Some people want Christianity without the authority of God's word, without the scripture. I can almost guarantee you, if we hear, and I'm not trying to be critical here, but if we hear a story in the news about a denomination that has slid far from the authority, or from, from the gospel, or if a church or a pastor or anybody who has had moral failure or slid, one of the first things to go is the commitment to the authority of Scripture. It's to say, we don't really trust God's word anymore, right? Like, that's archaic. That was for that time. Like, we're enlightened now, so, like, we're going we're gonna to use the Bible when it's convenient, kind of like Jefferson did, right? But we don't really believe all that stuff about like scripture being inerrant and God's word being authoritative. Again, we'll talk about that plenty next week as we look more about the testimony of scripture and how all of the scriptures point to Jesus. So I want to close with a few questions for us to ponder this morning. As we rightly read ourselves into this passage... And as we are confronted with Jesus' words, here are the questions. Have you heard the shepherd's voice? Have you heard and are you hearing the shepherd's voice? Have you seen the Son and therefore seen the Father? Is God's word abiding in you? And do you believe in the one whom he has sent. Those are all there in verses 
37 and 38. Have you heard the shepherd's voice? Have you seen the son and therefore seen the father? Is God's word abiding in you? Do you believe in the one whom he has sent? And those are questions for all of us to consider and all of us to ponder this morning as we prepare to come to the table. We need to ask ourselves, am I believing and hearing the shepherd's voice? Do I see the Father because I've seen Jesus? Is God's word abiding in me? And do I believe in the one whom he has sent? I'm not asking for perfection in your life. I'm not asking that all of these things, that you have all your ducks in a row. None of us do, right? I'm asking, do you trust in Jesus? Do you trust in these witnesses, in these testimonies that are true about who he is? Do you trust in what he says about himself? If so, this table is open for all who believe in him to come and to partake.